We're, we're closing out our series this morning. I think we spent 15 or 16 weeks in the book of 1 John together, the letter. And this is a letter, I want to remind you, that was written by Jesus' best friend in the world. One of his disciples, the inner three, the, the one whom the beloved disciple of Jesus, the one that knew Jesus better than anybody on the face of the planet. And, um, and, and what, we, what we see in this letter is um, we see precision and we see that John has an agenda for us. And that agenda is that he would give us great confidence in eternal life, in love, and also he teaches us how to deal with our sin and how to deal with the, the parts of life that are just a little more messy. So John, John deals with that, and he shows us with great precision who the true church is and what the church is intended to be in this world. In John 19, 27, we see that, that John uh, was charged by Jesus on the cross to, to carry for Jesus' mother Mary as, as if he were her son. And, uh, and he does that until the end of her life. And, and, and so as we, as we think about this passage, I want, I want you to hear the final goodbye of Jesus' best friend on earth. Um, and I want you to hear it like, like an older wise grandpa would, would share you know, his final words with, with, a, with a grandchild or a son or a daughter. Um, because in his goodbye, he's thinking about how he's going to be with Jesus forever. I mean, it's so close to John. And, and that, that leads him to write in a way that uh, makes eternal life imminent and very present and very palpable to him. And he, and he writes to remind us uh, of, of who we are and how we will forever be with Jesus. And so the big idea of where we're going to go today is this, is what we believe about eternal life determines how we live today. What we believe about eternal life determines how we live today. Two big, big points are this, that we... We need to have a, a, a more thorough uh, and, and, uh, um, and deep understanding of what eternal life is. And the, and the second thing is this. We need, we need to see what the characteristics of eternal living today are. So that's where we're going to go today. So let's dig into this understanding of eternal life. 1 John 5.13 says this. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And we've said from the beginning of this passage that a Christian is someone who believes in the name of the Son of God and confesses their sin and repents of their sin. That that person, that person is a Christian and that person has eternal security in God. That, that people who do not do that and do not live that way and do not love their, the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and their neighbor themselves, those are not Christians. John's very clear on telling us that. So he's writing this to the church to give us confidence in who he is. So the big thing I want to say under this point is this. Eternal life is about not only a duration of life, but also a quality of life. Let me say it again. Eternal life is not just about a duration of life or a length, a period of life, but also about a quality of life. And when you understand that it's not just about duration, but it's also about quality, it informs how you live today. That's what we're after today. If we only understand it as a duration and not a quality, we will miss out on the kingdom of God. We will miss the little things that God is doing in this world. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll miss out on the joy of participating with him and his rule and reign in all things, whether they, we think they're good or bad things. He is ruling and reigning. We'll miss out on that. That's why it's so significant that we understand this. 
Because the reality is this, is that every confrontation with the fallen condition uh, of this world, so whether that's the, the tears that we cry, our failing bodies, our broken relationships, our suffering and our pain, every single one of those con- uh, confrontations that we have with the fallen condition, they, they serve as an opportunity to gain otherworldly confidence and encouragement, all right? That, that, that's what they do. Those circumstances lead our hearts to something that's eternal, not temporary. Because the reality is, is this, is that our bodies will all fail us and ultimately have to be restored at Jesus' return. This is what 1 Corinthians 15 talks about when he talks about the resurrected body. This is what Romans 8 talks about when he speaks about this idea of glorification, the fact that we'll be given new bodies when Jesus returns, whether, whether we've passed on to be with the Lord or whether we are still here when Jesus returns, we will be given new bodies is what the scriptures say. But the point is not that we will receive new bodies. The point is that your souls are eternal right now. So even though your body, this this flesh suit that you live in, is not eternal right now, your soul is. And our souls, though riddled with temptation and frustration because of the fall, have a quality to them right now, like, like at your conversion, that will outlast anything that you see or could attain on this earth. That is so significant, and it, and it determines so much of our joy and our hope in this world. Because the enemy desires to get to your soul through your body and your circumstances. He desires to quake your security, you know, your rock-solid confidence in God's kingdom through shaking the physical parts of who we are and our experience in this world. Think about Job. How did the enemy seek to get to Job? Job chapter 1, what's he do? Hey, I'm going to take away everything close to Job. I'm going to take away all of his money. I'm going to take away all of his family, all of his livestock, cattle, land. I'm going to take away everything. And it's like in a moment's notice, it's all gone. And the scriptures say that, that Job continued to worship the Lord. He didn't curse him. Job, Job uh, into chapter 1, verse 2, what does, Job, what does the enemy do? He, he attacks his health, right? He is seeking to get to his soul through his body and possessions. Why would we think that the enemy is not trying to do the exact same thing to us today? He's seeking to quake and shake our rock-solid confidence in eternal life that we have. So the question we got to ask ourselves is this, is what is life? What is eternal life? We've said it's quality and duration, so let's delve a little bit more into that. John chapter 10, where Jesus is talking about himself being the good shepherd, there's this, there's this great verse, verse 10, where he, he, he talks a little bit more about it when he talks about the thief that comes in and tries to take the sheep away, to lure them away, to attack them. And he says this, the thief, or the enemy, comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. Like That is his aim, that is his purpose. But I, Jesus, came that they may have life, and have it abundantly, that they may have life, duration, eternal life, but have it abundantly, quality. So, so the entire purpose that Jesus came to live among us and stand with us and to live now in us through his spirit was to give us abundant or excessive life, life to the extreme. And, and you know, this overflowing life 
is something that Christians currently possess, but I, but I fear that it is a reality that very few experience. Because what happens is, is that the, the, the physical parts of who we are, they, they, they have a, a stronger and louder narrative than the souls that God have, has given us that have this eternal quality about them right now. Do you remember how Jesus defined life? It's in John 17, 3. John 17 is this, this prayer that Jesus offers. I, I actually call John 17 the Lord's Prayer because it's actually the time that the Lord prayed, right? John, uh, Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 10, what we call the Lord's Prayer, that's how Jesus modeled for his disciples to pray. But this is actually the Lord's Prayer right here. John 17, 3, one of the things Jesus says when he's praying is this. He says, this is eternal life. He's talking to his Father, that they know you, they, us, the church, that they know you, Father, the one and only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Like, that is the essence of what eternal life is. If, if we describe life other with any, any descriptors other than knowing the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent, it is not the definition that Jesus has given us for what life is. And therefore, cannot be cannot be what life is for us as Christians. But so much of our lives, we define life as other things, don't we? And so we say, I can't be having abundant life right now because of X, Y, Z. If someone were to ask you today, church, what does it mean to be fully and abundantly alive? What would you say? What would you say, or better yet, what narrative would your life speak? If someone were to ask you, what does it mean to be fully and abundantly alive? How would your life and your decisions and your conversations tell the story of what you believe life to be? In my flesh, you know, here's where I lean. I would start by thinking about the people that matter most to me. You know, Megan, the kids my extended family, my friends. And then I would move toward the stuff that matters most to me, you know, work, finances, etc. And I would, what, the way that I would describe life would be about the quality of how those relationships and possessions appear to be going according to the world's standards. You know, I'm checking off the, I'm in my mid-30s, you know, I'm kind of building this game plan long-term. Yeah, it's going well, it's going great. You know, that would be how I describe or, or fail to describe what abundant life is to me. And this is why Satan goes after Job like he does. Because so many times we define the quality of life as, as things in the, as, as our um, ability to, to kind of live up to the world's standards of what the world describes life is. And I'm, I'm, just, I'm just suggesting this that we need to redefine what life actually is. If we're, if we're going to understand how to have a quality of life that is eternal, we've got to redefine what it is. We've got to let God define what it is. You know, we live in this, this fallen world, and, but the Lord has promised to renew, revive, and transform our souls now. That's not waiting until glorification. The quality of eternal life begins now. The work that the Lord is doing in your soul now will be carried into eternity with you. It's not like he's just going to wipe your soul clean 
You know, and you're going to get this new soul. Your, your soul is forever now. And so the work that the Lord is doing by conforming you to the image of Jesus as this is pressed into your mind, into your heart, into your soul, it will last forever. It will go with you into eternity. That's why you can have a quality of life now that is otherworldly. Sometimes I think we get this mixed up. And this is why Paul writes 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. He's talking about all these circumstances that are, that are really bad in the beginning of 2 Corinthians 4. You know, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're struck down, but we're not destroyed. You know, we're persecuted. You know, we're afflicted. We're, all these things are happening, he's talking about. All these things that we would say, this is not life. That's what we'd say. But he says, as Christians, we think differently about what life is. He says, we don't lose heart. Chapter 4, verse 16, though our outer self is wasting away, what powerful language. All that you see, all that you are physically, it is wasting away. It will not last forever. Your stuff will not go with you. It's like a game of Monopoly. At the end of it, it all goes back into the box. So you got to choose what you do with your money and possessions and your time. How can that feed into the eternality of people's souls in this world, in your own soul. Your health, it, it will fail, you know? It, it, no matter how old you are and how, how good it seems to be right now, it will fail you, I promise. He says, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, that's how he describes the hardships of this life that we have physically, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In other words, unless you suffer, unless you are afflicted, you won't know what to do with God's glory when you get it fully. That, that what is happening now is not the end of your story. That what God is doing is preparing your soul through the hardships of what you experience in this life to receive the full weight of glory that we will have when we are face-to-face -face with Jesus forever. And that is what eternal life is. And so because of that, we look at affliction. We look at suffering. We look at pain and tears and hardship and heartache. We look at it differently because we're eternal now. He goes on to say this. He says, as we look not to the things that are seen for our hope, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, all of the physical things that we put our trust in, these flesh shoots that we live in, they are transient, meaning they are fading. They will disappear. They're like a mist. They're like a vapor. They're not going to last. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Church, what does it look like for you to focus on the unseen right now? To invest more of your time, more of your money, more of your life, more of your hope, more of your joy in the things that are unseen right now. Because it is not a good investment to spend all of your time, all of your money, all of your hope, all of your joy on what is seen. Because it will not last. But so much of our lives are spent investing in things that don't last. And John just wants to remind us this morning that there's a better investment to be made because not only do we have a duration of eternal life, but we have a quality of eternal life right now.
Here's what God is teaching us in his word. That the quality of our physical lives and the quality of our spiritual lives are not always linked. And I would go on to say they're almost never linked. But how much, how many times do we gauge the quality of our soul when we say, hey man, how's, how's your soul doing? How you doing? Do we begin to describe the physical things in this life, the flesh suit experience, right? That's what I do over and over and over and over again. But the truth is, when I look back on my life, the times that my soul has been, the, has been in the best shape has been the times that the, the physical parts of me and my experience in this world have been in the worst shape, right? It's true. Just talk to anyone who suffered. Their soul was in great shape when they suffered. Because why? Because God was preparing for them an eternal weight of glory, right? He was preparing them to receive more of who Jesus is. Jesus is eternal life. So the interesting thing about 1 John is, do you notice how he ends the letter? I'm going to read this. I'm going to hit it again in a second. But, you know, you think about how you end a letter or an email, right? Sincerely, you know, grace and peace, if you're, if you're kind of a hipster or whatever like Brandon. Um, you know, uh, however you end conversations, right, you kind of ease out of them. Well, here's how John eases out of his, you know, letter as a grandpa to a little church. He says, little children... Keep yourself from idols. Kind of abrupt, right? Kind of, he's, he's down to business, though. There's no time to waste. You know, he's, he's not going to waste any of that ink that, that he's writing this letter with. So he, he says, little children, keep yourself from idols. Why does he say that while he's talking about eternal life? Because when the, your physical experience in this world, the one that Paul says is falling apart, whenever you put your trust and your hope and think that that's what eternal life is, and you don't get it because you suffer, and you're, the enemy convinces you that your suffering means that you're not blessed, and you don't have eternal life, and you shouldn't have confidence, what do you run toward? Idols. You run toward idols, because idols are, are good things that God's created that our hearts crown as ultimate things, right? And, and so idols promise to give us a better experience in this world. They promise to dress up our fleshly experience and to make it eternal, but they never deliver. So John says, by the way, you know, you've got eternal life because you believe in Jesus, but when the world and the enemy and the flesh try to convince you of another reality, you got to remember to keep yourself from idols because they never come through with their promises. So eternal life is about a, Duration of life, we get that in large. We're going to last longer than anything else that's ever been made. Our souls are. And God's going to give us a body that matches that in eternity. But the quality of life means that God is building his kingdom here right now through what he's done in your soul and what he will do through your body as long as you are here. And that's why Paul wrote, hey, it's better for me to go and be with the Lord right now. I'd rather go be with him. He writes this in Philippians. But but for your sake, I think it's better that I'm here. For the sake of the world, it's better that you're here right now. So what, how are you going to live out that quality of eternal life that God has given you right now? That's the question. Secondly, what John tells us is that there are certain characteristics that describe eternal living now, that quality of life. There are certain things that Christians do. First thing is this, is they, they invest that's not the right word. They uh, emphasize personal prayer and communion with God. Personal prayer and communion with God. Let me read 1 John 5, 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, 
That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. There's, that's not a conditional statement. You know, if we ask, that's the only condition. If you ask, he hears you. There's the promise. If you ask, he hears you. And, we, and if we know that he hears us, we have that confidence, oh yeah, God's going to hear me no matter what I ask. We know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Now there's, a, there's some keys in here, right? Uh, so confidence in who God is and who we are in his image comes through a dialogue with God as we experience his presence in our lives in this world. That's called prayer. Do you know um, anyone who's really hard to get a hold of? Like, for instance, if you try to, if you try to get a hold of Brandon on the phone, um, good luck. I mean, it's not going to happen. In fact, Brandon's voicemail was so offensive that I had to tell him to change it. It used to say something like this, like, hey, uh, thanks for calling. The best way to reach me is to, is to send a text message because I probably won't return uh, your phone call. But, you know, if you want to walk on the wild side, you can leave a message, right? I mean, that was literally his voice. I'm like, bro, you're a pastor. Like, that, that, no, this cannot be the case. And so I think he, he changed it a little bit. But so Brandon's hard to get a hold of sometimes. But, you know, maybe you know people that are as well. Uh, like if you're trying to get a hold of any customer service company, uh, it's hard to get a hold of people. You wait on hold, all that kind of stuff. But do you know who's someone in my life who it's, it's not hard for them to get a hold of me? It's my kids, right? I mean, I could be having a, a, a very serious conversation and Maggie Roman, Tatum, or Caden could come up, they could barge into my office, or they could, they could come up and just kind of, you know, put themselves, insert themselves into a conversation, and I will listen to them. Well, you know, we're working on, you know, the appropriateness of all of that, but, you know, they can get my attention. You know, your kids can too. You get your parents' attention, right? You have access to them. I think John is encouraging us to think about our relationship with God in the same way. This is why in Romans 8 it says, you know, that, that he gives us the spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. That cries out, you know, like a, like a small child cries out to their father. Like, like that is the posture of the kind of prayer and access that John says we have. And, um, you know, prayer is this offering up of our desires that are to, for things that are agreeable to his will. And, and, uh, and, and we offer those up to Jesus who's interceding for us, who's seated at the right hand of God, right? And when you pray, there are three possible responses that you will get. The first one is this, yes, yes, and amen, yes. The second one is no, and the third one is not yet. I can think about some seasons of deeper prayer in my life. Uh, one was when Megan and I moved to Atlanta, uh, we're, we're seeking to move somewhere to, to plant a church. Uh, Megan and I were at Starbucks, and we were writing out all of these things that God was going to have to do for us to be able to plant a church in our minds. Uh, one, was, one was this, that, that uh, we, bought, we bought our house in 2008 in Indiana. Ooh, yeah, right? Not good. And uh, that was a recession for you young folks. Uh, but yeah, so we bought this house, and uh, it, it unfortunately was, was worth less than we paid for it. And uh, in 2012, when we, when we sought to sell it, and we, we prayed, Lord, we cannot afford to go into debt. We cannot lose money on this house. If it's possible, Lord, would you sell this house without us losing money, any more money than we already have? And I'm getting ready to list the house on the market. This is a Sunday evening. It's going on the market the next day. They've already taken the pictures, the descriptions on, on the market. And I'm thinking, God, you're not going to do it. You're not going to do this. I've prayed. I've asked you. This must not be according to your will. Well, as I'm locking up the youth room that night, my sound guy comes down out of the sound booth, and he says, uh, 
He says, hey, Ryan, do you, what are you going to do with the house you guys live in? That's a great little house. And, and uh, I said, you know, funny you should ask. It's going on the market tomorrow. You want to buy it? And uh, without pausing, he said, yeah, I think I do. I, th- I think I do. Um, and so anyway, we worked this deal out, and he basically just took it over for us. It was a, this amazing gift of God that gave us confidence. And then there was other things like, you know, for the church to keep us on after I told them that I was leaving in November. We prayed that God would, you know, allow us to stay on staff until June. They did that. Uh, to find a, a two-year full-time church planning residency, uh, a, t- a two-year full-time church planning residency. And uh, we hadn't heard of anything like that. God brings up Perimeter Church. I mean, over and over and over again, we wanted to be close to family. God, there were five things that we were praying for, and God said yes to them all. And how would I have known that those things were according to his will unless I asked him, right? So sometimes God says yes, Sometimes God says no. Sometimes God says not yet. But, you know, there's this catch. So those are the possible, those are the possible answers to things that we ask of God in this world. But the, the catch is this, that we have to ask according to his will. So what's that mean? Well, the first thing is this, is there's never been a prayer that you have prayed that God has not heard. That's what First John tells us, all right? So God always hears he just doesn't always answer the way that we think that he's going to. And sometimes that gives us pause to ask, hey, did he really hear? Well, let me just, you know, kind of put that uh, unrest at bay in your heart. Yes, he's heard you. So how do we as Christ followers, image bearers of God, learn to pray according to his will? How do I know if I'm praying according to God's will? The first thing is this. We pray according to God's revealed will in the word. So this is praying about things that God has already declared in his word, all right? So, you know, let me give you an example. You might be dating someone. There, there are several people in the church that are, you know, either engaged or they're dating someone. And you might say, man, I really like this guy. He's great. There's only this one problem, Lord. He's not a Christian. And you might be praying, Lord, Lord, let me get married to this guy even though he's not a Christian, maybe someday he'll change. Well, when you, when you read First and Second Corinthians, you, you see that it's, that it's actually sinful to get married to an unbeliever because you'd be unequally yoked. Like spiritually, you wouldn't be on the same page. And so, like, like you already have your answer to that prayer. No, that's, that's a no. Or a not yet until they become a believer, right? Or you might be saying, you know, the, Lord, the government's so greedy. You know, they are just taking so much of my paycheck um, and, uh, and, and I can't be generous with my life. And so I'm just, I'm going to fudge on my taxes this year. I'm just going to, I'm going to leave a couple zeros out and, uh, Lord, I promise I'll give all that money to you. Well, you know that the scriptures say that you, you're called to render to Caesar what is Caesar's, right? And so, so we're called to pay our taxes. We're called to, even if they're a lot of money, right? We're called to pay those. You got your answer there. On, on the other hand, you might, you might pray, Lord, help me to stay pure, Help me to stay pure. The Lord is pleased to answer that prayer request. It might not be in the exact you know, little details that you, you thought, but he's pleased to purify you because he's called you to be holy as, as he is holy. And he says, blessed are the pure in heart, right? So, so, of course, he wants to purify you. Or you might pray for a stronger marriage if you're married. Of course, that's something that God wants to answer, right? Ephesians chapter 5, he wants to strengthen your marriage because marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. And God hates divorce, all of those things. He wants to strengthen those things. Now, we might not be in the exact details of how he answers that, 
But you know those are things that please his heart. And I just wonder, let me just say this, I just wonder if we'd pray more about the things in our lives that, we, that God has made clear that are his will through his word, if we prayed more about those things, if the things that are unclear and a little gray to us might become more clear, right? Do you know what I mean by that? If, we, if, if we'd pray more about the specific things that God has made clear in his word that are his will, we pray, focus on praying those, the things that are, that are a little less clear, they might, get, they might get resolved a little more quickly, but instead we jump to these, these kind of situations that aren't as clear and we, we base our whole prayer life on that. And, and so we, many of us don't have confident prayer lives because we're not praying about the things that we know God is concerned about. Because John says that the confidence comes when you ask God and he answers you. When my kids talk to me and I talk back to them, they're confident that I love them, right? The same thing happens with our Lord. Second thing is this, is, is, is we pray uh, uh, that, that, that his will, uh, you know, praying according to God's will is that, is that uh, we pray according to the wise counsel of other trusted believers. This is the reason why David's son, King Solomon, uh, asked, he asked for wisdom above all. You know, Proverbs 19.20, he even writes this. He says, listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. So sometimes there are simply things in life that, that we get muddy and unclear on. And, and what, what Solomon has written about, and the Lord has written about to us, is that it's, it's prudent to put other truth-tellers in our lives that we know are connected to God, that have confidence in God because they pray to him and they hear from him, that we put those people in our lives and we somehow gain confidence and clarity as those people are in our lives through these discipling relationships. And, you know, it's, it's so, so we, ask, we ask these people whenever we're in an unclear situation and we're, we're seeking to gain confidence through prayer and communion with God, we say, hey, what do you see in this situation? You know, do, do you, or you might ask something if you're real bold, do you see me trying to manipulate this situation right, right here to, to kind of get my way? You, you want to be bold, ask that question to a close friend. You know, if you have a manipulative personality like I do as your pastor, right? I know that's scary, but that's just who I am. So, you know, you've you you got to ask people, what do you see in me? And I ask multiple people. I've got multiple people around me that I'm asking these things. And, you know, God's will has always been revealed through other people. Sometimes it's taken longer. Sometimes it's not been on my timeline. But, but it's when, that I, when I try to white-knuckle a situation and control it, that I'm honestly afraid to let others in, right? I don't have space for them because they might tell me something I don't want to hear. You know, there was, there was a man in our church that recently, he leads a ministry and, and he was breaking off from one ministry to start another one and, and he, was, he was really concerned about how that would go. So he put five or six different guys in his life and asked them, just kind of open-handed, what do you think about this? And, and the Lord led him to a place where he ended up breaking off and starting this new ministry. It was this beautiful experience for me to sit back and watch uh, the Holy Spirit guide through other trusted advisors in his life. And the third thing is, is this right here, maybe spirit-directed prayer. And this one's a little mushy for those of you, especially if, if the, when you hear Holy Spirit, if it just kind of wigs you out a little bit, all right? But, but I don't want you to blow past this. You know, sometimes there's just this inward sense of God leading through the Spirit. And it's the trickiest of all because... Uh, you know, it's, it's the place where your flesh can be most manip manipulative. But you see this in Paul's life in uh, Acts chapter 16. 
whenever he was, uh, you know, planting churches, and it's, it's called the Macedonian call, and the scripture literally says this, that he was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go to the, the other place he wanted to go, because God wanted him in Macedonia. Forbidden by the Holy Spirit. Sometimes you have these moments where you just know internally what God has called you to do. You just know what it is. Last year, I had a, a man pull me aside, and he wanted my approval about a situation. He wanted wisdom. Uh, and it was, uh, it was actually both against the counsel of other trusted advisors that he'd asked, and it was against God's word. But he kept, he kept going on about how strongly he felt and how everyone else was wrong about this situation. Uh, you know, he, he felt strongly that the Spirit had led him to offer up his house for another woman to come and live with he and his wife. And, uh, and, and even though his pastor, his children, and his wife thought this was not a good idea, he continued to proceed with the decision. And he thought uh, myself and others were wrong, and, and now he's no longer married, right? I mean, so that, that's an example where you can say, no, I really know on this, but you, you let others in, and they say, no, 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 that's, we, we don't see it that way, and here's why. That's how the Spirit leads us to pray according to God's will, right? It could have been an opportunity to pray for another living situation for that young lady, right? It could have been, it could have been that's how God may have answered it, but that's not the case. So first thing, first thing that, we, that, are, that are characteristics of those that live eternally now, they have that quality, is that there is a sense of communion and conversation with God through prayer that is evident in their life, and they have confidence because they hear from the Lord through prayer. Second thing is this, prayer for and pursuit of our brother's and sisters in Christ. Listen closely here. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, and let me just let me stop right there real quick. Do you remember all the times that John has said in 1 John, in all five chapters, that the characteristic, one of the characteristics of those that belong to God is they love their brothers and sisters, right? He says this over and over and over again, that you can't, you can't hate your brother or sister and say that you're a Christian, that those two are incompatible. So it makes sense for him to bring this up again here. So if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Okay, so this is tricky, all right? We're going to dig into it though. Um, and, and I want to I keep us out of kind of rabbit trails here, but, I'll, but I do want to unpack the, the clarity of it a bit. So not only does the Lord want to build your confidence in the eternal quality and duration of your life through personal prayer, but also prayer for those that you love and care about, is what he's saying here. It's tricky to interpret, and here's what, you'll, here's what you should know about God's Word, that all Scripture is equally authoritative and true, but not all Scripture is equally clear. All right, and this is one of those. What is sin that leads to death? What's sin that doesn't lead to death? I thought Romans 6.23 said that the wages of sin is death, right? You're kind of like, how do we, how do we interpret this? Well, uh, this is one that has varying interpretations, and, and the question is this. You know, what does he mean about sin that leads to death and sin that doesn't lead to death, and why should we pray for one and not the other? He's talking about two types of people here, okay? One he calls a brother, and this is a fellow believer that is struggling with sin, Right? When you hear the, the word brother or sister in the scriptures, it is describing the family of God most times. And so that's how we're interpreting this, that he's talking about a brother uh, or sister that is caught in sin, right? Um, 
you could say that, that maybe they're talking about an unbeliever because they're praying that God would give them life. But the way I'm interpreting life is that God would revive their soul, bring them back to life, bring them back to their senses through the Spirit. And, uh, you, you know, John has spoke openly, you know, this entire letter, you know, about this. And he's, 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 he's been clear on trying to address people that are believers and not believers. But John mentions this other person that he says you shouldn't pray for that's, that's, uh, that has sin in their life that's leading to death. He doesn't call that person a brother, okay? Uh, so, you know, it, he says it doesn't do much, it doesn't seem to do much good to pray for the one whose sin is leading them to death because they're not alive in the spirit. So what would be more helpful is to pray that God would bring them to life, right? To convert them. Instead of just praying for their struggle against sin, pray that God would bring them to life completely. So what type of sin is this person committing that leads to death? And what type is the other you know, person that their, their sin doesn't lead to death committing? Well, in the scriptures, you know, we see that Jesus has said that there's kind of one unforgivable sin. It's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And it's, it's denying the divinity of Jesus and everything that he lived and died for. Some think, it's, some think that, that that sin that leads to death is, uh, is, is Christians that die because of the consequences of their sins. So some people could say, you know, Ananias and Sapphira, right? That's an example. They seem to be Christians. They were supporting the church. Because of their sin, it led them to death. Or you could even, I can think about situations of Christians that, that are clearly Christians, but they've taken their own life, right? You think about situations like that, so maybe that is the sin that he's talking about. Who knows? Um, but what, we do, what I want to focus on is what we do know about, is that God calls believers to intercede for one another when we're struggling with sin. That's the main thing. Don't get, don't get wrapped around the axle on, you know, what, what is this sin? The main thing about this passage is, is that that, that, that the Lord wants to answer your intercession for your fellow believers and help them as they struggle with sin. So what is sin? What is sin? Sin is any transgression or trespass against God's law. So God's revealed his law, he's revealed his word, what his will is for, for Christians, for those that are called by his name, made in his image. And sin is any time we, we cross that boundary, right? And, he, and Jesus has come and said, it's not just what you say, but it's even what you think. It's what the whole Sermon on the Mount is about. So, so, um, so sin is both a condition, as original sin, and it's an agreement. We are born as sinners into this world, and we live out of that condition by agreeing with our sinful nature. We're not sinners because we sin, and we've said this often. We're, we sin because we're sinners, right? We, we, we're just showing ourselves when we sin. But what the Holy Spirit has come to do is to give us life the ability not to sin, right? Because we have life in Jesus' name through the Holy Spirit. So that's, that's why I think that when, you, when he's talking about praying for a brother or sister that's caught in sin to give them life, that he's talking about a, a kind of a, a fresh empowerment of the Holy Spirit to battle against sin in this, in this world. So let me ask you this. Do you, does anyone have someone that you really love right now that's struggling deeply with sin? Of course you do. Of course you do. We all do. Because that's what life is like in a fallen world. So here's what John says to do. He says, ask God to give him life. Ask God to give her life. Ask God. So the first movement is not to go and tell 10 other people about their sin. The first movement 
is not to go send them, you know, four books on Amazon about their sin, right? The kind of that passive-aggressive, pastor-aggressive as we call it. The first movement is not just to see how you can fix them. The first movement is not even to get them into the church. The first movement is to pray for them, he says. To pray for them. That's a really practical thing we can take away today. You have a brother or a sister in the faith that is caught in sin, pray for them that God would give them life. Pray for them. And sometimes the Lord calls us to action, right? To confront sin. But he does not call us to confront sin physically until we've prayed for them. That's the first thing, to pray for them. And then we've got the whole Matthew 18 process to, to go to them individually, to bring, if they don't repent then, then bring someone else with you or two or three people. If not, then take them to the leadership of your church, it says, right? Matthew 18. Ephesians chapter 4 says, speak the truth in love to one another, right? To your brothers and sisters in Christ. But the first thing you're called to do is to pray for them. So the Bible calls this intercession, all right? So what does intercession or praying for other people, interceding on their behalf before the Lord, what does it do when we pray, when we intercede for other people? Well, here's the first thing it does. It unburdens the believers that are praying for them. So some of us walk around carrying weight that we were never intended to carry with our lives and our hearts. We we assume weight that belongs to Jesus, not us, right? Right? There is a sense of burden that we're called to carry as we struggle in this life, but the, but the burden of sin is not one that we're called to carry, right? We, call, we carry the burden of pain and affliction, Paul talks about that often, but we're not called to carry the burden of sin. And some of us have a propensity to absorb the sin of others and try to carry it on our own. And you know what that does? It enslaves you. It takes away your joy. And it makes you miserable because that is not God's design for who you are, Christian. You are to be unburdened. This is why Peter writes this, to cast all of our anxieties upon Jesus because he cares for us. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, that we are are called uh, to... um, to, to let Jesus carry, uh, let me just read this real quick. I'm not going to stumble through that. Let me read Matthew 11, 28 through 30. I had it memorized, but slipped my tongue here. Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Come to me, all who are, who are labor, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. First thing, come to him, he says. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And here's the key, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When you intercede for others, you are putting the yoke on the, the yoke of Jesus on you, which is light and not burdensome. That's what we do. So my, my question to you is, are you burdened by the sins of others this morning? If you are, are you truly interceding for them? Are you just trying to carry weight that doesn't belong to you? First thing it does when we intercede for others is it unburdens us. The second thing is this, is that keeps us engaged in the lives of others. I don't know about you, but my temptation is to avoid people that sin differently than me. 
You know what I mean? Someone sins differently than me. They've got a different issue they struggle with. I'm kind of like, oh, okay. Hey, how you doing over there? You know, you, you kind of avoid people that sin differently than you. We're comfortable with people that sin the same as us, right? And, and the, the thing that it does is that when, when you get a bunch of messy sinners together, you're going to see people that sin differently than you. And there's a temptation for factions and divisions and divisiveness to happen in the church. And it's really related to our sins of choice, if you want to boil it down, right? It, our lack of conformity to the image of God. And this is why when God brings unity through the Spirit, that our differences all fade away. That, we're not, that we don't have uniformity, but we have unity. And this comes as God sanctifies us. So when we intercede for others, especially those who sin differently than we do, it keeps us engaged in a meaningful way in their life. And do you know what happens when I'm in people's presence that I'm praying for? It's really hard for me to avoid people and not love people that I'm praying for. Amen? Really hard to do that. So in your flesh, when you want to hit the eject button on somebody because they're, they're caught in sin and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm going to disown them. That should be a word that we never use in the church, by the way, okay? It's, that, that is not a Bible word. It keeps us engaged in the lives of others as we pray for others. The third thing is this, is that petition's the only one who can do anything about the sin. So what we do when we try to burden ourselves and carry other people's sin is, is really, really we don't help the person at all. Because we can't do anything about the sin anyway. We can't deliver them eternally. So we are, putting, we are making a beeline for the only one that can do anything about our, our brothers' and sisters' condition and their decisions. Uh, the fourth thing is this, is it helps us verbally process. I'm a verbal processor. Uh, you know, that's why sometimes at staff meeting I just start talking and then I'm like, hold on, wait, write that down. Because I, I, I just process out loud. I, I don't process in this kind of neat way that's behind the scenes and, and then all of a sudden it just comes out perfect. I'm a verbal processor. Maybe that's you. Intercession gives you a way to verbally process with the Lord, to verbally process and let him clarify and distill what it is that is his will for this person's life as you pray for them. The fifth thing is this, and this is just kind of a, a, a secondary effect, is it just frankly minimizes conflict. When you intercede for other people, it minimizes conflict because you are going to the Lord on their behalf and you're inviting his power and presence to be applied to their life and actions and your life and actions, right? And, uh, and, and conflict always looks differently when I come into it with, with a prayerful heart for the other person. Amen? The last thing, almost the last thing is this, is transformation through grace and effort. So let's continue reading here. It's a little longer sermon. Bear with me here. Um, verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God, that's Jesus, protects him, the Christian, and the evil one does not touch him, the Christian. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may, may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. So no, no matter what your experience in this world as a believer is, you are eternally alive. And the Lord is pleased to invite you to cooperate with his spirit into transforming your life. That's called a big Bible word, sanctification. God's going to use his grace that empowers you and your effort to transform your life.
Did you hear that? So, so those of us that just say, I'm just going to sit back and let God do it all. Well, Philippians chapter 2 says this. You're called to work out your own salvation, the gift from God, with fear and trembling. So there's always this grace in effort. Now, it's important to realize this, that grace always comes before effort, though, right? You're, you've already been empowered with the, with, the, with the power of the gospel, but there is an effort that's involved, in, and John writes about it several times right here. And the first thing you got to see is this, is that as disciples of Jesus, we are called to be transformed. We're new creations. Some of us think that we will never change, and some of us don't ever want to change. That's sinful. He's saying disciples of Jesus don't keep on sinning. That's not the mark of a disciple. He doesn't say work for your salvation in Philippians 3. He says work out your salvation. And so the work that God is wanting to do, he's already put the money in the bank. We've just got to spend it as we work out our salvation through fear and trembling. And what that means is, is that whenever we sin surfaces in our hearts and lives as Christians, We've got to wrestle to the mat and be transformed in the name of Jesus. He's given us the power to do that. Now, some of that struggle is, is going to be, you know, when, when, I, when I first became a believer, I was a very angry young man. I had a, I've told you guys about this, getting technical fouls in basketball games, getting thrown out of things. I mean, just doing just really just dumb stuff. The Lord took away my, my temper and my anger immediately when I became a Christian. I know people that that... That is not their story. But there are other things in my life, other vices in my life that he hasn't taken away as quickly, right? You've got the same story. You've got some stuff in your life that the Lord has just, he's just giving you supernatural grace to overcome. And other things that are a struggle. Don't be confused in the things that are a struggle and think that God is not going to transform you. He is. He's promised it. And he's, and he's given us grace to do that. Uh, the next thing is this, uh, about, just about working out our salvation, grace and effort here, is that though disciples experience pain in the world, they are ultimately victorious. We talk about this often at New City Church. So the world and its systems and structures and powers and principalities belong to the enemy because we exchange God's rule and reign in the garden for the broken appearance of power and control. And the enemy wields that power. He waves his sword around. But we are living eternally now in this temporary world. And ultimately, God protects us, as John writes here, um, from the evil one. And he can't touch us, ultimately. He can tempt us, but he cannot ultimately touch us. And this gives us confidence, even in our struggle with the effects of sin in a fallen world, because they are not our ultimate story. John wants us to know this. He wants us to be reminded of this, that he gives us confidence that our addiction will not ultimately define our inheritance. Confidence that our physical pain and sickness does not have dominion over our souls. Confidence that everything that truly matters in our lives and in eternity is secure in Jesus. That's the confidence that he gives us. And Jesus even said this in John 16, 33, that in this world you will have what? Trouble. You will have trouble. Not you might or not. If you came from the right family, you won't. You will have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world is what Jesus said. So it gives us confidence that as we experience the fall in this world, it is not ultimately victorious over our lives. And lastly, disciples are empowered to repel idols. So let's come back to where we began today. Jesus' final words 
or John's final words to, to the church here. He says, little children, keep yourself from idols. When we fail, church, to see that the quality of eternal life, when we, we fail to see that, we just think about the duration, how long it is. We don't think about the quality here today and how good it is and how magnificent the gospel is. We allow our circumstances to tell us another story. And, and, and idols are the currency of, of a life, of trying to find life in this world. That's what it looks like. There are idols everywhere, right? Idolatry is placing creation at the center and not Jesus at the center. It's the pursuit of a good thing, trying to squeeze eternal life out of it. And Christian, we have power to keep our souls from idolatry in the spirit is what John says. We don't think that we do. We feel very powerless if we want to be honest about idolatry. And the quickest way to know that you're being dishonest about idolatry is to say that you don't have any. Amen? It's to say that you don't have any. American culture is so riddled with idolatry that we can't even see it. Just ask anyone that's come from a different culture that has had real idolatry in their culture. When they come here, they're like, oh yeah, I can see it everywhere. It's the same way that you, if you were to go, if you were to, go to another country that, that has you know, a, a, a polytheistic um, you know, theology, and they, they actually have idolatry, you know. You can see it really quickly. But when you're immersed in a culture of idols, you can't see it as quickly. So my question to you as we kind of wrap up here is, where's the idolatry in your own life, in your own heart? And our idolatry will show up on our calendars. It will show up in our bank account ledgers. You know, it will, it will show up everywhere if we just look at it. And John says, if you want to know about the quality of eternal life, keep yourself from idols. Now, church, we can't do any of this without Jesus Christ ruling and reigning in our hearts and humbly submitting to him. Jesus is so good that he's given us power and relationship, and he wants you to be confident, above all, that he loves you and he's going to carry you to the end. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you've given us power, Lord. Power uh, over the enemy, confidence in eternal life, real life that comes from knowing God, comes from knowing you and Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd touch our hearts this morning in a powerful way.